was just uh, remembering that we began our meditation by talking about um, making the mind in the mood to meditate in different ways, and we particularly, I particularly mentioned uh, thinking about some kindness that you had done. There's all kinds of ways to make the mind in a good mood. I want to suggest that we uh, make the mind in a good mood uh, for the rest of this evening by starting by reading together the Metta Sutta, which is up on the wall behind me. And really, uh, to give you a hint about the workshop that's coming up, that's going to say the whole of the Buddha's teaching in one sermon. Here's the one sermon that... Uh, if you, as we read it along, you'll see, begins with instructions about ethics, and the middle of it is instructions about how to cultivate the kind of mind state that's attuned to making decisions moment to moment to keep the mind in a benevolent way. And the end of it is uh, a recollection of what happens when you've trained the mind and the mind is wise and can sustain the recollection, may all beings be happy, that that particular mind is not born again into suffering. And it's said that uh, the Buddha taught this to uh, monks as uh, they were about to go out on their own, either to teach or to live in isolated places. And the Metta Sutta was a... uh, uh, an amulet um, saying praises of blessings for all beings was meant to keep you from all ill befalling you. So that it has a tinge of magic about it when you recite it. So with that in mind, let's plan to protect ourselves from all things by aligning us with these teachings. Let's read it together. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened by duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings they may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mightyum, medium, short, or small, the seen or the unseen, those living near or far away, those born or to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. And as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, 
spreading upwards to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should sustain should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding and not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from sense desires, is not born again into this world. I love that. That's my favorite thing. So I thought I'd have three texts to talk from today. And, well, I'll tell you what they are. The first one is the Metta Sutta, and we just read that together. And the second one is I want to tell you uh, about the movie The Last Dalai Lama. How many people saw that? Not so many. I wonder if it's still at the Rafael. Oh, then you should... I'm not supposed to say that you should go. I think if you can go, it would be great to go. Uh, and uh, the third is I want to talk about Dunkirk. How many, saw, how many people saw Dunkirk? Not so many. And it sounds like three different things, but they're really not. They're really, in my mind, all connected. Um, So I'll talk about the the Dalai Lama film a little bit, which I saw a week ago. Twice. I went back because I saw it the first time, and I liked it so much. And I went back a second time, both because I went with a pad and paper so I could write down the sentences that I wanted to write down, and also because it made me feel good. The movie starts... Before you see anybody, it says, um, and there's a voiceover, and it says, so long as space remains, so long as sentient being remain, beings remain, so long as suffering remains, I will continue to serve. This is the purpose of our lives. A voiceover says that. And then quite soon, I may have maybe juxtapose some scenes. I think the first scene is you see His Holiness the Dalai Lama sitting on a big throne-like chair and he's meditating and his eyes are closed and he's sitting quietly and there's no music or any voiceover. For quite a considerable period of time for a film, there's nothing but the Dalai Lama sitting there. You rarely see that in a film, in, a, in a radio, that's considered dead air if you're not saying anything. And people will lose their, their concentration or they'll get bored. But here's the Dalai Lama sitting there. And I felt the opposite of bored. I felt delighted, you know. And by the time you go to the movie, anyway, you have to drive to San Rafael and find a parking space and come to the movie and buy your ticket and go and sit down and you're there, okay? And your whole life is trailing in after you. And then you sit down and all of a sudden, here's His Holiness sitting. And you feel better. 
And isn't, isn't that true? That, that you feel better. It's like a transmission. He didn't say anything yet or do anything yet or give an instruction. He just sat there and you get it. The transmission. You know what I thought about? That um, in the traditional stories about the life of the Buddha uh, and his growing up in a kind of princely, as a prince in palatial setting and uh, finally as a young adult making his way out into the real outside world outside his palace walls and seeing what I came to come to be known as the four sights that really inspired his own journey to figure out the cause and the end of really the end of human suffering and the four things that he saw were uh, an old person and a sick person old person bent all over a sick person in some grievous way ailing and a dead person bloated and hard to look at and a monk walking along serene of visage and I have always understood that story as uh, most likely being metaphorical or allegorical but I think it's the first part of that story the first three sights are three sights that we either see or get to know each of us in our growing up there comes a time when we realize that uh oh Life is only forward, and people die, and people we love get old and get sick. Sometimes they get sick even before they get old. People die. And the whole question of how can you be a human being when people die, and especially people who are dear to you die, the whole question of existential, uh uh-oh, it's hard to be a person because you are vulnerable to loss. Really the first noble truth is, uh uh-oh, it's hard to be a person. We are vulnerable to loss. Really because everything changes. We get old, things change. Sometimes the things we, we wanted don't happen. We lose our dreams, we lose our hopes, or we don't. We get them and then they don't last. All the reasons that it's hard to be an adult but then in the middle of it, here's this monk with serene a visage. And the monk is going to get old, and the people that that monk loves will die. And somehow what I get from that story is that this is the way life is. It's fragile, and it's temporal, and it's always disappearing as we watch it and experience it and live it. But you can, the presence of that monk, serene of visage, says to me, we can live this life with a certain amount of equanimity and kindness and a serene mind that says, this is just the way it is. That's how it is. It's not a mistake that we are vulnerable to loss. Somebody said to me, just in the last week, I was teaching in a venue, not this, maybe an introduction to the Buddha or Buddhist philosophy. And someone asked, who was fairly new to the whole idea, said, could you teach us a technique for dealing with loss? So I said, you know, I think the whole of the Dharma is about dealing with loss. It's about acknowledging it. 
and dealing with it. Dealing with it by dealing with it with compassion. We're not, it doesn't, getting old and getting, losing what's dear to us is not unique to any one person. It happens to everybody. We're all in the world together, doing this life together. Doesn't mean that everything in life is gloomy. It means, uh, certainly there are spectacular and wonderful things that we celebrate, but we don't worry about them. What we worry about is the loss and the things that don't go the way we hope they will. How to have a mind that's uh, accommodating of that. And not only accommodating of it, but kind because of it. Everybody's in my same boat. How can I be a person that's making this experience of life better for everybody else? So here we haven't gotten off the first five minutes of the movie. Here's the Dalai Lama sits, and he's like the monk, serene of visage. And he gets up at the end of his meditation. I think he looks at his wristwatch, which is a thoroughly modern monk, and gets up and gets down off where he's sitting. And uh, he does three traditional bows all the way down to the floor. And uh, he's got four monks who are standing right next to him to help him get down and lie down. He doesn't lie all the way down, but he gets down and then he gets up and then he goes down and up and down and up. And he's got two monks on either side helping him get down and up and down and up. And then they go on. Very shortly after, maybe it cuts immediately to a scene that says 1991, which is 25 years ago, 26 now, and you see the same Dalai Lama. It's actually film. I mean, it's not a recreation. It's film that was made of the Dalai Lama at that time, I guess archival, because he is the same Dalai Lama, but 25 years ago, sitting on a same or similar chair, also meditating serene of visage, and looks at his watch and gets up, and stands up by himself, steps down, and does three complete prostrations, easily down to the floor and up. And no voice over says, by the way, that's a teaching on impermanence, and you're supposed to have gotten that. But you really do get it. Everything passes, and you see it so just beautifully done. Somebody says to him, other uh, Dalai Lamas have announced what they're going to do in their next life. So what do you imagine that you're going to do in this life? And he said, I think what I'm going to try to do is have some time that I can live in isolation. I want to be able to practice more diligently. Then he says various things that really give you a clue about what his practice is. He says, I think when I die, my last thought with my last breath is going to be an altruistic one. He said, I think so. He said, except if I die all of a sudden, like if my plane falls down, 
It's very cute, you know, here he is, he's very serious. My last thought's going to be altruistic, except if my plane falls down, all of a sudden, it might not be. And then he does his little laugh. <laughs> he has a little laugh like that. This is so cute. But I love that because what he's really talking about then is when the mind is at ease and the mind is relaxed, the best part of us shows up. And you think about why does he want to do more practice in isolation? He's already a, a lovely and peaceful man, really devoted to making it a better world. But he said, you know, I sometimes, he said, I still get angry. Something doesn't happen the way I want it to. I get mad. Sometimes I shout. He said, and then I'm over it. I really maybe found those the best parts of the whole thing, that he keeps on reminding you that he's a person, just like us, you know. And that the job is never finished. You know, you keep on working until you, you don't say, I've finished, now I'm a perfect person, I'm finished. You work on that, it's a nervous system thing to be able to have your heart and your mind and your body so tuned to the altruistic response. At some point, someone, oh, he, he recounts his uh, leaving Tibet uh, when he was 19 years old and coming to the West, and that it was a very arduous trip. It took 17 days on foot and on horseback, and there's actually some archival film about that as well, in black and white. And you see people trudging along. And he said it was very, very hard, that trip. He said, sometimes I worried about being able to maintain my compassion. There's another scene where uh, uh, I think it's another monk who says to him about a time that he was uh, imprisoned by the Chinese invaders. And he said, I worried a lot when I was in prison that I would lose my compassion and that I might become like those guards. And the Dalai Lama says at one point, if you lose your compassion, you lose your soul. I find that all tremendously touching. I wondered what he meant when he said, I think my last thought is going to be a compassion, an altruistic one. I wondered if, he didn't say, what one? I was thinking... Is he practicing, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering? Or I don't know. But that it should be an altruistic one. At one point, um, one of the uh, narrators, one of the questioners making this film, says to him, uh, do you hate the, Ch- the Chinese? He said, no, no, never hating, no. Says very little hating, no. So that's when he said, anger sometimes arises. But anger arises, but then I see it and it goes away. How many people would like that to happen with them? It's such a burden to have anger arise and stew around. You know, anger arises because we're human beings and we have nervous systems. How many people got annoyed at something today? 
How many people here got annoyed at anything? One false move, we get annoyed, you know. Too much traffic, too much this, too much that, too much noise, whatever it is. <laughs> On the highways, when I drive along, I sometimes think to myself, look at all these people in a car, all by themselves, polluting the atmosphere, clogging up the lanes, nobody can get anyplace. I realize I'm in a car all by myself <laughs> when I'm thinking that. You know, the mind is completely outrageous in what it can think of. If it's annoyed, it can think up anything. When he said the purpose of life is to serve as long as there is suffering. And he said one line that I, I especially wrote down. He said, uh, when you help somebody, automatically you get inner peace. Automatically. I really liked that. It just so happened that when I, I at some point in the last week, I uh, decided to read a, uh, another short story in a book I have by Tolstoy. I just started to read Tolstoy this very last year. Uh, and I'm, I really, I love it, so I'm reading a lot. Anyway, this is the, the, the death of Ivan Illich. Who read that? About a man who suddenly, um, who's done everything right. He's done everything right in the terms of what society expected of him. And all of a sudden, he takes ill with a grievous illness. I realize this is uh, written in the mid-19th uh, century. In the 1800s, you take ill, no one knows what you have, and no one knows how to treat it. So he's slowly getting worse and worse sick, and his family is avoiding him and not talking to him, and uh, more and more staying away from him, rather than as we do now. First of all, we have ways of treating but we also have ways of talking to people about what's happening to them. With my friends who are currently sick or getting ready to die, we talk about that all the time because it's right there in the room with us. We also talk about what we remember in our good times and everything else, but we talk about this is what's happening. And nobody talks to Ivan Illich, they let it, and he feels really betrayed that nobody sees him. The only person who talks to him is um, a peasant who's in his employ, who is part of his household, who spends days and nights with him, taking care of his bodily needs and cleaning him up and holding his legs up in the air all night long because he's eased in his pain when that happens. And he thinks to himself, Gerasim, this is this peasant man, was the only person who recognized the position he was in and who felt sorry for him. That was why Ivan Illich was only at ease with Gerasim. He felt comforted when Gerasim sometimes supported his legs for whole nights at a stretch and would not go away to bed saying, don't worry yourself, Ivan Illich, I'll get to sleep enough yet or when suddenly dropping into the familiar peasant forms of speech, he added, if you weren't sick, but as it is, 
It would be strange. You are sick. It would be strange if I didn't take care of you. Jerusalem alone did not lie. Everything showed clearly that he alone understood what it meant. And he saw no necessity to disguise it and simply felt sorry for his sick, wasting master. He even said this once straight out when Ivan Illich was sending him away. He said, we shall all die. So what's a little trouble? He meant this to express that he did not complain of the trouble just because he was taking the trouble for a dying man and that he hoped that for him too someone would be willing to take the same trouble when his time came. I just read that and I was just thinking that's exactly it. I read it when I thought about automatically that if we're somehow in touch with what's really true we all die And automatically, if we know that, then automatically when people are in trouble, we take care of them. I think about that when you go to visit someone in the hospital and you walk down, especially on intensive care floors or uh, long floors with different rooms, with different, and and you're walking down to see somebody at the end of a corridor and you go by all these rooms with the doors open and there's a person in the bed and a clump of people around them. And you don't know the person in the bed and you don't know the people around them, but you know that they are people who care about that person and they are people who care about that person. And wherever you're looking in a doorway, you feel for them. They're not your person, but they feel about their person like you feel about your person. And to be able to feel that, I think, is the essence of what we're talking about, to be able to see... Really, may all beings be peaceful and happy because we all have to do this life together. Now, there was an interesting thing in the end of the Dalai Lama movie. I can't remember how they make segues into this, but suddenly, here's George Bush. Our recent president is a painter in his retirement. Did you know that? He's taken up painting and he's pretty good. And he's there, and and he's showing the painting that he made of his holiness, which is a very interesting painting of him. And here's George Bush showing the painting and talking about it. And he's he's, he's so respectful. And in essence, he's saying it was a great honor to to be able to be with his holiness. He's so peaceful. He embodies so much peacefulness. And, you know, however you voted, I didn't vote for George Bush. And I haven't in my life, I don't suppose, had very good feelings for George Bush when I had them. But all of a sudden, I liked him a lot. (laughs) And the thing was, in the moment of liking him a lot and finding him very agreeable, it was as if a, an albatross had fallen off my neck. I was just really happy not to be annoyed with George Bush anymore. <laughs> and I think that that's a really important lesson. I really noticed it. Oh, what a pleasure to like George Bush. And the thing is, it's a pleasure to like everybody. And to whatever degree I have lists in my mind of who I don't like or who I will never like, Omitting none, it says in the sutta. Omitting none. 
to the degree that I don't have people on my I don't like them list. You ever you, you remember? Um, do you remember the uh, in the uh, Mikado in the Gilbert and Sullivan Mikado? The Lord High Executioner says, um, "I'm the Lord High Executioner." He sings, and I've got a little list. And he pulls a scroll out of his pocket and he opens it up. I've got a little list of people who never would be missed. And then it's like, so that I think to myself, I don't think of myself as a person with a lot of people on my I don't like them list. Somebody said to me, do you not like people? No, 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 I'm really, my heart is open. But I discover, ah, George Bush is here. But now... I have a good heart on George Bush, so it's one less person on my list of people I'm not fond of. So I'm happy about that. I think we feel better when we have one less person on our list. And sometimes dramatically better. I didn't know when I would read this story to you, but I'll do it right now. Uh, This is a book called um, I Who Did Not Die. And I've been very impressed with it. It's written by, it's written with Meredith May. Meredith May is a journalist who lives in Marin County, actually. This is recently published. And really it says the book is by Zahad Haftlang and Naja Aboud. One of them is an Iraqi and the other one is Irani. And they were both in the war that happened for 10 years in the 1980s between Iran and Iraq over a a boundary line that uh, was contested. So the two men in this book who are shown here on the back cover, well, I'll tell the story because here are the two men together. The two men, uh, one of them, the Irani man is a boy at the time. He's 15 years old. He lives in Iran. His family is, uh, his father is tremendously abusive. And actually he, he leaves home at, at some point because he can't live there with them. And he moves in next door with neighbors who are kindly. And uh, the father in the, in the neighboring house particularly is a devout man and uh, really tries to speak to him about living kindly. He's 15 years old and um, this war breaks out between the two leaders of the two countries, the Ayatollah Khomeini and uh, Saddam Hussein are arguing about this boundary line between the two countries, which is the, the source of the grievance that sends the two countries to war. And they're recruiting uh, in both countries and he at 15 goes to the recruiting station he says they were playing martial music people were getting really excited and I see that there were lots of other young boys joining up and old men also who were roused up they were playing very exciting music and uh, everyone was shouting about defending Islam, they were whipped up by the music. All I can say, <clears throat> uh, 
I'll, I'll skip on. Everybody's getting all excited about signing up. He forges his father's name on a permission to join because he's so young. And he, and he adds, and so he joins, he said, it, it wasn't clear to me why we were fighting with Iraq, but Ayatollah Khomeini said the war was a gift from Allah because it was a chance to give Islam to the whole world. Islam, shmislam, I just wanted to stop living it the way I was. So he joins. By his fortuitous number of circumstances, he uh, is befriended by a medic who says, you can be my assistant. So he goes around with the medic. The medic has a bag and is able to administer drugs and do things. And, and he learns how to clean up bandages and make a tourniquet. And so he's a medic assistant. So sometime later, battles are now happening. He realizes he's in a terrible situation and he wishes he wasn't there. At the same time, in Iraq, there's a man who's in his mid-twenties. He's already done his army service. He's back out of the army. He's met a woman. He's actually fathered a child with this woman. Um, they get in this war and he gets called back up and obligated to go and serve. So he also is out in the war in a terrible battle between groups from both sides. Tremendous number of people are killed. The battle is over and the young Irani medic assistant is given the job to go look through these bodies and find Irani soldiers who are wounded but not dead to put them in an ambulance to get them to a hospital. He's in the most incredibly terrible situation, literally digging through bodies, trying to find who's alive, and he's frightened to death. And he suddenly hears a moan from somewhere on the other side of this room. He doesn't have a gun. He hasn't carried a gun. But he picks up a gun from one of these dead soldiers. He said, I heard a sound. I whipped around and looked at the man, a man who was looking at me through half-lidded eyes. The man looked at me and he said something to me, but I don't understand Arabic. So I knew he was Iraqi, but I think I caught one word of it, Muslim. It came out like muzim. I stood and put my finger on the trigger, but my shaking hands made it impossible to fix on a point. Then he lifted his hand and weakly reached for his shirt pocket. I thought, ah, this guy is going to blow us both up. I dove to reach the grenade first, but my hands touched paper instead, and I pulled out a pocket-sized Koran. I slumped to the ground, now gasping with relief. I knew that every soldier I knew carried a Koran into battle, and I guessed that all the Iraqis did too. I learned, looked back at the man to make sure he wasn't reaching for anything else. Muslim, he moaned. There was something hidden in the book. I suspected 
money after watching so many other soldiers pillage so many dead bodies. I'd learned that every Koran everyone carried doubled as a wallet. I held it open on my palm and the pages fluttered to reveal a photograph tucked inside. I saw a woman with olive skin and dramatic eyebrows holding an infant to her chest. The baby's face was in profile, but it was so young that its skin was still bright red. The woman's dark eyes cast a spell like she could look straight into my secrets. There was something about her gaze, a sadness that made me want to hold her hand and tell her everything was going to be okay. I knew I was holding his family in my hands. These were the people who loved him and who would die inside if I killed him. She was so beautiful, like the kind of wife I would want someday. And it would be wrong to ruin her life, even more evil to take away the baby's father. This soldier had a life that wasn't here, wasn't supposed to end with me shooting him in a bunker. Something had brought him to this war that was out of his control, because otherwise why would he leave such a beautiful family behind? The Iraqis smiled weakly at me, and that's when I noticed that we were the same. We both had two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. Why was I supposed to hate him? He had never harmed me. I'd managed to get this far in the war without killing anyone. I wasn't going to start now. If I put a bullet in his temple to end his misery, then the guilt would haunt me forever. I could walk away, but letting him suffer was more inhumane than taking his life. I heard the voice of my next-door neighbor, the man who had been his surrogate father, talking to me, saying... Zahed, you should always be merciful. And I thought to myself, I could be merciful. So he saves this man. He disguises the circumstances and he gets, makes him a tourniquet and he gets him somehow onto an ambulance going back to a hospital. He can't make him into a non-Iraqi. So he goes to a hospital and then he's a prisoner of war for 17 years during which time his woman and his child have been killed. Just a few weeks after he saves this man, he himself, this young Iraqi boy, Irani boy, is um, wounded. And he's in a hospital for weeks and doesn't wake up. He's unconscious. And finally he wakes up And he says, I look out and there's a nurse taking care of me and she's so beautiful. And she had a a cup and I needed help drinking. She tipped the cup to my lips and waited for my reaction. Do you need cooler water? She said, warmer? Should I bring you juice? Her question sent my mind spinning. No one had ever paid that much attention to my needs in all my 15 years. No one had ever considered what temperature of water I preferred. It was too strange to have someone trying to kill you one week and someone to bring you a perfect cup of water the next. So they both live in different places, but they don't know each other's names. And years later, 
because of distinctly different circumstances, they're both in Vancouver. And they meet in the Canadian embassy, I think. And one of them recognizes the other one. And they become friends. And they tell the story to Meredith May, who writes it. So clearly the line that I keep thinking about is he was just like me. He had two eyes and a nose and a mouth. It would be on my it would be in my heart for the rest of my life. He's just like me. Why can't we do that? I have been reading uh, Robert Sapolsky's book called Behave. It's an extraordinary book. I really commend it to you. It's about the biology of human beings and why they behave both as well and as badly as they sometimes do. I also went to the movies and saw Dunkirk. So I had read about it just before it opened because it got really extraordinary reviews for how it was filmed and the acting. And it truly will win a lot of awards for that. What I, it was stunning to watch, not because it's so well done, it is well done, but because it's so realistically done. You may not know that the Battle of Dunkirk or the event of Dunkirk was 1940, after the, the United States was not yet involved in the Second World War. There were, after Belgian, Belgium uh, uh, um, surrendered, the German troops ran into Belgium and pushed the English troops and French troops all the way to the beach, uh, up to the uh, English Channel. And although that's within visual range of getting back to Britain practically. It's not there. And they needed to come, uh, the, the, they needed to send boats to get them, and there weren't enough available at that time. And when the movie starts, men are lined up on the beach waiting to get on boats, and airplanes are coming over periodically, strafing them just like target practice and they are just out on the beach and an incredible number of people got killed and you see people in planes shooting them and people in planes shooting the people in planes who were shooting it's just incredibly distressing to look at you know um I only remember about Dunkirk. Eventually, by the way, a, a boat comes and gets enough of them and another boat comes. But really the, the, the story is about the numbers of uh, British citizenship citizens not in the services who took small boats, fishing boats, across the channel and picked up people and brought them back. And the individual circumstances are 
so touching and so amazing, the heroism of people who don't have to go and go anywhere. And they're just little tiny touches, like all these men flood up to the boat that's come and are boarding it to go. And one of the commanding officers uh, of that boat is not letting some of them onto the boat because they're French. He said, the British only. You think to yourself, they're people. They're just like me. Eyes and a nose and a mouth. How could that be a distinctive? They're not even our enemies. They're our allies. By the way, this Sapolsky book is so extraordinary in talking about the evolution of us and them. How, how we have so much trouble with... Um, Well, I'll start that sentence differently. Having all beings, omitting none, whether they are big or little, near or far, all beings. And the more um, the more amazing it becomes that human beings are one of the few species where they kill each other. Sometimes in other other species. Males fight for some property. The amazing thing is that it becomes clear that the domination that happens in those instances is this is my tree, this is my area, this is fighting over real estate. When the Iraq-Iran war ended, that contested boundary line had not moved an inch. Ten years later, a half a million people were dead and the boundary is still in the same place. My husband and I, until about three or four years ago, were still cycling and we had the good fortune to be able to cycle quite a lot in Europe. And you cycle from one place to another and you come to uh, any small town and... uh, in some town plaza, there's usually some statue where they have the names of people who were killed in the first war and in the second war. Spent a lot of time in the south of France, and it would always say "More pour la patrie" on those uh, memorial statues. Uh, died for the country, fatherland, country. But um, I was always very unhappy to to see that because apart from all the young men who died, I think they didn't die for the country. They died for real estate. They died, again, because people were fighting over real estate. Even more poignant now, because we spent a lot of time in the south of France, which is where people from all over Europe come now because there are, it's the European Union, so you don't have to have a passport to go from one country to another. And if you sit in a restaurant in a beach town uh, on the south of France and walk from one table to another, you hear hear they're speaking German and hear they're speaking Italian and hear they're speaking Spanish and hear they're speaking French. And their grandfathers or their great-grandfathers were killing themselves, killing each other in desperate battles over this many feet of real estate in one war or another war. 
and why that can't stop, why it hasn't stopped so far. It's very easy to get caught up in fervor for a cause. What Sapolsky says is we're the only species that kills each other for ideologies. We're not killing each other for dominance, well, dominance, maybe not, but but we're using as a means of whipping up people ideologies we need well whatever the ideology is to have in mind that somehow if we can in this world before it meets some tragic end or pollutes itself so badly begin to see like that young Irani boy, he has two eyes and a nose and a mouth, just like me. He is just like me. Just like me, he wants to go home and have dinner with his family and celebrate another birthday and take care of his aging parents. Then maybe we could stop. I think that the heart of practice, what we are all practicing, is how to be able to see clearly past the moment of our personal volatility. That what one develops, I think, from practice, like His Holiness said, I get mad and I shout, but then it passes. I think that it's a testimony to the fact that we can get mad without doing anything about it, without hitting. Maybe this is the image that I'd like to leave with you. I once, uh, when I was going to school, I was watching a movie about child development and the uh, uh, narrator was talking about children who are three or four becoming aware that they need to learn to inhibit impulses when the impulses would hurt other people. And so you're, you're watching a family scene. Now, this made a movie made a long time ago, so it's not anywhere sophisticated. But you see uh, a child who's probably four with his toddler younger brother and uh, who picks up one of his blocks or something, and his mother is facing the other way, looking away. The child realizes that, and he's mad at his brother, and he picks up his hand, and he starts to come down, and halfway down, he stops, and then he comes down, and he pats his head. So in mid, that somehow, starting at three, we learn that the thought that arises does not need to be followed through, that we don't need to do that that we could treat everybody with that kind of care.
and realizing that everybody has as much trouble as I do, not to say anything that comes to our mind, not to do things that will cause people pain. It's an amazing thing to be a grown-up and to keep it together. You know what? That's not the last scene I want to leave you with. The last scene I want to leave you with is, do you ever sit in an airport where they keep saying, your flight that was already delayed twice for a half hour, then for an hour, then for another? They say, well, you know, it is landing. It's on its approach. And as soon as it lands, we'll deplane, and then, then you can board. And there's all these people in the boarding lounge. And there is one toddler who has lost it and is, having, is lying on the floor pitching a fit. And I think to myself, everybody in this boarding lounge feels like that child. <laughs> they all want to throw themselves on the ground and pitch a fit. But they're not, you know, they're holding themselves together. So that's what we have to do. We have to really, we have to honestly, okay, this is the best place to end. And I saved it because I knew I'd use it sometime. Remember when I said you'd get annoyed at anything so far today? So here's a picture of, uh, it's a cartoon of uh, two men in workout outfits. In, 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 uh, workout outfits, so they're standing, looks like Central Park, and they're doing the kind of leg stretches that people do before they start a run. So one guy is doing the stretching, and the other one has got his cell phone out, and he's he's fanning down through the cell phone. And the the guy that's doing the cell phone says, I can't even begin to work out until I find the right news to infuriate me. <laughs> so, so that's... So, like, we shout. You hear that? You hear a noise. <laughs> I, I'm not even going to read the news that's infuriating that I took out of the paper this morning, because you read it and you think, "Ah, how can they do that?" And then you quietly, or not so quietly, you make a phone call to your senator. You make a phone call to another senator in another state, and you talk about that because it's like halfway down and you stop. My father used to say to me, come to listen to me talk, and I would be talking about, this is now 40, 30 years that my father is gone, so it's a long time ago, but we have always been talking about when are people going to catch up with themselves and inhibit themselves enough so that they don't frighten each other to death. And he'd come to hear me talk, and, that, uh, and when we leave the class afterwards, he was always very uh, complimentary. He said, that was great, so I really enjoyed it. He said, except, he said, just to be the devil's advocate. And that's what he, I knew when he said that, that meant he was going to have some criticism. And he said, just to be the devil's advocate. I feel like I need my anger, and I need it to activate my, my, my social conscience and my activism and my knocking myself out for these causes and I say you know what dad you need the anger to tell you that you're supposed to do something after that you just do the thing you don't keep churning up the anger 
because if you do that, you won't see as clearly and you won't do it as well. You need So that's what we need. We need to become infuriated and then do something with it that helps. I was thinking about if there were a name for this talk, I would call it outraged and compassionate. That's what we want to be. Outraged and compassionate to ourselves and to other people by not creating more havoc in a complicated world. Outraged enough to go out and make a difference. I had a really nice time being here. Thank you very much. May all beings be peaceful and happy. May you go back into the world inspired by what we talked about here. May you go to the movies and see the Dalai Lama film. If you decide to see Dunkirk, prepare to feel outrage, not outrage, dismay, complete and utter dismay, feel brokenhearted, and then go home and make a difference. Call some senators, start a few petitions. May all beings be peaceful and happy and not suffer. <laughs>